Are you a podcaster or a future podcaster? Then you should know about Acast. The world's best podcasters work with Acast, including the one you're listening to right now. And anyone can join and start podcasting with us. It's easy. We have everything you need to host and grow your show and share it across every podcast app out there. You know what else? You can make money from it too. Visit acast.com forward slash hosting to find out more and get started for free. Acast, for the stories. What does loyalty mean to you? What lengths would it take for your loyalty to be broken? What would be required to gain your loyalty? If this loyalty was at your expense, would you break it? Or would you accept that perhaps that is the idea of loyalty? It's the life of a Wicklow woman which answers these questions for us. This is her story. On the edges of Ogram, as the soft, silent breezes trickled through the mountain ranges of Wicklow, from which the gods observe, in 1778, a child was born. Her name was Anne Devlin. Anne was the second child of seven born to her parents, Winifred and Brian. Soon after Anne joined the world, her father happened upon a rare opportunity for a poor Irish farmer. He had sought out and gained the ability to rent a 30-acre farm in Rathdrum from a man called Thomas Darby. The family settled well. The sister of their landlord, Miss Leonard, took a great liking to Anne. The baby child was doted on by Miss Leonard with no children of her own. Anne's father, although deeply Republican, did not particularly mind his daughter being cared for on occasion by the British settlers, as for the moments they shared with Anne, she was briefly not a part of the poverty he had known his whole life. Anne and Miss Leonard grew close as they spent their time together. Miss Leonard found Anne to be a remarkable young girl. She noted her as being friendly, funny, honest and incredibly loyal. She often tested this loyalty by telling Anne secrets which had no basis in reality, just to see would the stories come back to her. Time after time, the story she told Anne would never be spoken again. She learnt that to Anne a secret was a secret and there would be no more about it. Their relationship began to become unsettled, however, after Miss Leonard became close to and married Lieutenant Edward Heppenstall, a member of the Anglo-Irish aristocrats. Edward Heppenstall was the brother of Jack Heppenstall, who was the man most hated by the local people of Wicklow for his attitude towards them. He stood at six foot five above the locals, both in height and in self-indulgence.
Due to his dislike and disgust of the wild, untamed people of Ireland, he joined and then led a group known as the Wicklow Militia. The militia were created in order to stifle all talks of Irish rebellion. They were a form of anti-vigilante vigilantes, righteous in their belief of their souls being far superior to all others born into the manacles of shame and poverty. Jack had elected himself the judge, jury and executioner of the Irish people. In 1796, Jack earned the nickname The Walking Gallows. Scalefadigar. In the sweet, quiet village of Moyrove, County Westmead, in 1796, on a quiet, still and clear night, the devil arrived. As the people of Moyrove slept, Jack led the Wicklow militia into the village. They quietly walked to the doorways of the Catholic Irish and snuck inside to as many as they could. They snuck into the single room dwellings which the poor called home. Inside them, on beds made of straw which they shared with their livestock, lay the resting Irish farmers, the people who went before us. As the militia stood by the sleeping, Jack marched himself into the centre of the village and began drumming on a large bell. As this thunderous roar tore through the village, the people were grabbed by their ankles and ripped from their homes into the streets. They were chased into a circle and watched as the night sky was lit up by the flames set to their thatched roof houses. Screaming and crying, they watched on, helpless, as all they had went up in flames, and they listened as their cows, pigs and chickens cried for mercy. When the cries of the animals evaporated into the sky, Jack turned back to the crowd, and with his large hands pulled one of the villagers by the crown of his head, and pulled him out of the crowd. Step forward, all relatives of this man, he shouted. The man's father and brother did as they were told. Jack then turned to a man in his group who was beating a drum to encourage chaos and told him to remove the cord around the drum. He positioned him so that their backs were touching and then lurching forward he raised him by the throat off the ground, using the cord and his large frame. The man kicked and wriggled, tearing off his fingernails as he clawed at his neck in an attempt to break free. His efforts, I am saddened to share with you, were in vain, and after a few minutes his muscles weakened and he could struggle no more. Jack then let go of the cord and the lifeless body of the young Westmead man fell to the floor in a heap. Jack then turned to his brother, a similar sized man, and repeated this act. The brother too fought for as long as he could, but to no avail. As he dropped the second lifeless body to the ground, 
Jack was more tired than he had anticipated he would be as a result of the fight these men put up. This wasn't enough to spare the father of the men, however, as he ordered one of the militiamen to stab him, which he did more than willingly. The militia then left the village once they took any valuables they could find. The following morning, as the sun insisted on rising once again, the villagers sat in silence contemplating what had happened, mourning the dead and fearful of the future without a home or food. As they awaited life to continue, the militia returned, charging through the village on horses with the three dead men tied to them being dragged behind at speed. For the next four years, Jack and his militia travelled throughout Ireland, visiting villages and repeating these acts of horror. It was as a result of this attitude by the British in Ireland, as well as the drastically unfair laws imposed on the Irish, which caused the boiling bubbles of rebellion to begin. While Anne was living in Dublin with Miss Leonard, as her husband's brother played God, her father and brother had become involved in a group called the United Irishmen, a group of Catholic, Protestant and anyone else who identified themselves as Irish, who rose against the English in order to create an island free of oppression. In 1797, Anne was requested by her father to leave Miss Leonard and return home. Loyal, of course, to her father, she returned straight away. In 1798, they rose together. The sons of Erin rose themselves off their knees and stood tall together, Irish men, Catholic and Protestant, Celtic, Anglo, Norman, wild tribal warriors, ancient kings and Viking raiders. Together they marched across Ireland for the people of Ireland. The British Crown forces sided of course with the likes of the Wicklow militia, whilst the French joined the cause of the Irish. Holy war tore through the land, and between May and October, 50,000 Irishmen had died for the cause of Irish freedom. Britain called upon its powers of empire, and the Irish simply could not match their ongoing relentless and replaceable force. The rebellion failed, its leaders were killed, and hope was executed. The harp was buried deep beneath the crown. For Anne's brother and father, as they hid in the Wicklow Mountains with the United Irishmen, roads were built by the British to go and get them. These are the same roads we travel today when we visit such places as Guinness Lake of Loch Tay. The Irish were taken down from the mountains and once identified, they were first tortured, they had their homes raided, children beaten and worldly possessions set on fire. They were then sent to prison for treason. After a stint in a Wicklow jail, Anne's father returned to the world of oppression but with nowhere to call home. He moved the family to Rathfarnham, where a secret group of United Irishmen were providing shelter and food for their brothers in arms. 
It was here that Anne's father became friendly with Robert Emmett, a high-ranking member of the United Irishmen. Robert was looking for some help in his home in order to manage its upkeep and Anne was offered the role. Robert at the time was living under a false name due to being exiled from Ireland for his role in gaining the support of the French in the Irish struggle. Had the rebellion continued a little while longer, Emmett had arranged for Napoleon to join the Irish efforts against Britain. Napoleon could not have joined earlier in the rebellion as he was preoccupied with the French invasion of Egypt. When Anne began working for Robert, she soon realised she was employed to make the house look like a normal residence. In reality, it was ground zero for a new rebellion. Robert was planning a new rising with the remaining leaders of the United Irishmen, and nightly meetings would take place in the back rooms of the house in the darkness to avoid suspicions. Anne's role was to hide all evidence of their meetings and when answering the door make it seem as though Emmett wasn't home and everything was normal. Robert soon found the same attributes in Anne as Miss Leonard had. He too learned of her incredible levels of loyalty. Understanding she would never share a secret, he began to confide in her his plans of rebellion and Anne was more than happy to discuss them with him and give advice from time to time. Anne wanted to play a role. She felt that the previous rebellion had passed her by somewhat and she too wanted to stand with the people of Ireland. Robert trusted her to deliver messages across the city for him. He himself could be easily identified, where Anne could move through crowds as though she was never there. It was a result of her role that Anne became a close confidant of over 50 of the rising leaders. Each of them understood that they could trust her, and with her close relationship with Robert, she could share what she thought would be his thoughts should they have any questions in order to keep the momentum of the movement going rather than having to constantly await replies. She even became very close to Robert's fiancée Sarah Curran and would also bring messages to her to arrange for meetings in secret. In 1803 the Irish once again rose. Robert was joined by Thomas Russell and James Hope in his rebellion as leaders. They had built their own weapons and developed knives with pikes which could be hidden within their coats. The idea being they could walk into crowds of soldiers and take out their weapons before the soldiers knew that they were under attack. Unfortunately for Robert however, the rebellion had to start before it was ready as their weapons were discovered by a British officer who they had to kill to stop him from talking. They knew that his death would be attributed to them and they would be arrested, so they had to start the fight to get ahead of being caught.
Robert had not spread the word enough to gain the support of the Irish as to what would be happening. As the rising began, many were confused as to what was happening and what Robert's message was. On the day of the rising, July 23, 1803, Robert wore a green coat, white breeches, top boots and a hat with feathers. They were prepared and laid out on his bed by Anne. He set out to seize the strategic positions identified earlier in the planning of the Rising. Dublin Castle, the home of the British rulers in Ireland, was their main target to acquire. The rebels marched up Thomas Street towards the castle. As they marched, they were met face to face by a British convoy. The two groups charged at each other as the overwhelming desire to remove the oppression on their souls enraged the Irish, who lost sight of strategy. Robert tried to halt their charge as he understood that they were not in battle formation. He watched on as a British soldier was torn down from his horse and stabbed repeatedly. As he was being stabbed, Robert noted he had high official medals on his coat. It was then he realised that they had met with an important power of the crown. In the carriage the British soldier was guarding sat Lord Kilwarden, the Chief Justice of British Ireland. He was the man who had sentenced United Irish leader and Robert's friend William Orr to death in 1797. He was also the man, however, who reported that Wolf Tone was being treated unfairly in prison before his suspicious death in a British cell. Beside him in his carriage was his daughter. Once identified, the rebels ordered that she leave and they parted for her escape. They then dragged Lord Kilwarden from his carriage and in a furious rage he was hacked to pieces. It was on this day Emmett understood that the men he led were not trained enough to be soldiers. Lord Kilwarden would have been the biggest bargaining chip the rebels could have had, but they spent it on bloodshed instead of freedom. The rebellion was called off and Emmett went into hiding to replan another rising. Emmett fled that night and had no time to get a message to Anne for her escape. She waited in his home at Butterfield Lane, thinking that if someone should come to the door, perhaps she could pretend he had nothing to do with it. In the early hours of the morning, there was no knock at the door, but just the crashing sound as a party of yeomen, basically bottom feeders of the British upper class, burst into the home in order to arrest Emmett and gain favour from those fancier than them. When they spotted Anne, she was hit in the face with the butt of a bayonet and fell to the floor. They then asked her where Robert was. Anne told them nothing. They stabbed her multiple times in the ribs. Anne told them nothing. They hung her from the beams in the kitchen roof. Anne told them nothing. They placed her head in a bucket of water until she couldn't breathe. 
Anne told them nothing. The yeoman then handed her over to the police who repeated the acts on her. They then asked where Robert was. Anne told them nothing. They stabbed her multiple times in the ribs. Anne told them nothing. They strangled her with a rope. Anne told them nothing. They broke every bone in her hands and feet. Anne told them nothing. Anne and her entire family were taken to Kilmainham Jail. Anne was kept in the dampest cell on her own, a cell which never saw the light of the sun nor the flame of a candle. She lived in total darkness. She lived in the darkness for about six weeks. In that time, her nine-year-old brother died in a cell in the upper floors due to the conditions of the prison. I would like to tell you that Anne's release from the cell after these bleak six weeks was an act of mercy. I would like to tell you that. I would also like to say that she was freed from prison and her family went free. I would like to tell you this, but I cannot lie. I ask of you to ask for peace for Anne's soul for what happened to her next. As Anne sat in the wet and dark, she heard the cell door open and watched a single candle move towards her. She was hit with a stick and dragged out of the cell by her armpits. The sunlight burnt her eyes as she faced upwards while being dragged through the courtyards of the jail. She was stood upright by a doorway and asked if she could see. Anne explained that things were still a bit blurry. She was told to tell the officer when her vision was right again. After about 20 minutes or so, they asked her again. Anne then said yes, she could now see as normal. She was grabbed by the arm and forcibly walked into the room next to her. In there, she saw the mutilated, mangled and tortured body of her dear friend, Robert. The previous night, Robert had been caught and brought in front of a crowd at St. Catherine's on Thomas Street. He was placed on a gallows in front of the crowd, had his arms and legs tied to horses to be pulled in opposite directions. He was hung and then beheaded. Anne's heart broke as she looked upon her friend's tortured remains. She was told that he would be buried in the jail as people were too afraid to claim the remains to give him a proper burial. She was told that he would remain in prison until the end of time. His soul would never leave the confines of the prison walls. Anne, whilst crying for her friend, was then dragged kicking and screaming back through the prison yards and thrown back into her cell. 
She was left here in the dark with little to no food for three years without trial. Her only relief from isolation in that time came from the beatings she would receive from a guard. On the days it rained, the corridor to Anne's cell would flood and the guards would not walk in it. Firstly, because they didn't want to get their socks wet, but the rain would also wash Anne and the other prisoners' excrement from their cells into the corridor. If it rained for days, they went without food for days. When the rain stopped, there was no sudden rush to feed them. Anne was eventually released in 1806. She found employment as a companion to Mrs Elizabeth Hammond at Sir John Rogerson's Quay. She held this position for four years. During this time she posed for a portrait which is now on display at the National Gallery of Ireland. Anne found it hard to adjust to life and her health had declined drastically due to her conditions in jail. She met a man called William Campbell who cared deeply for her and helped her regain some of her self-belief and strength. Their friendship blossomed over time and they married in 1811. Together they brought four children into the world. As a thank you for her efforts to save Robert, the Emmett family supported Anne and her family financially for a few years. She worked as a laundress in St. Patrick's Hospital between 1825 and the late 1830s when she lost her job due to a downturn in the economy. It was at this stage of life in Ireland that the people were living through further oppression as a result of the failed rebellions. The entire island was punished for the risings, with unfair rules being brought in on the Irish. Rules which led to the culling of the population during the Great Famine, which began in 1845. It was in the same year the famine gripped Ireland by the throat that Anne's husband took ill due to the diseases sweeping the island and he left his earthly vessel. This was the final straw for Anne. Her life spiralled into a depressive state and she descended into a life of poverty. Her health further declined as she developed rheumatism and bad eyesight. Between 1846 and 1851, Anne vanished from the world and was assumed dead. It was in 1851 that Irish historian Richard Madden found Anne. She was living with no fixed abode in the Liberties area of Dublin City. She told Richard her story and he tried to raise some funds for her to get off the streets and into some form of a fixed home. While raising money for her, Anne's health caught up with her and she joined her husband, Robert, Tone and all those who fought for Ireland in the peaceful release of death. 
Richard arranged for Anne to be buried in Glasnevin with the other heroes of Ireland. On her headstone he placed an Irish wolfhound, an ancient symbol of loyalty. Today's music was written, performed and produced by myself, Ryan O'Halloran. The story was researched and scripted by Oren. If you want to help support us in creating this podcast, you can buy us a coffee at www.buymeacoffee.com forward slash we the Irish or leave us a review on your podcast app. Ryan Esanamdum, Gurv Mahakut, Slananish. It's the big one. The Sky Half Price Sale is here. Choose from award-winning Sky TV and everything on Netflix or unmissable sports with every single live Premier League game on Sky Sports, BT Sport and Premier Sports all half price. Take Sky Cinema and watch the biggest blockbusters or grab Sky Broadband Ultrafast for lightning fast speeds. Choose one that suits you. They're all half price for six months. Save big in the Sky Half Price Sale. Search Sky Half Price. Availability subject to location, TV and broadband products sold separately. For more info, see sky.ie forward slash speed. Setup fees, min terms and further terms apply. Offer ends 2nd of September.